I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. And we are joined once more by our regular guest, contributor, Dr. John Schaff, professor of political science at Northern State University. Uh, the author of many fine books and articles, uh, most recently, uh, to my notice, in Public Discourse, a, a great article with a co-author on a topic that we've uh, previously covered uh, on this broadcast, uh, looking at the rule of St. Benedict and what it might mean for us as, as people um, increasingly inclined to, to, to grab onto those little electronic devices that we all carry around in our pockets and, and seem to permeate our lives everywhere else. Um, we're going to tackle a, a different uh, topic again today. Dr. Schaff, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Well, it's it's a delight to have you back on. And, um, you know, one of the, the topics that has been on my mind and, and been in the minds, I think, of a lot of, a lot of Americans, a lot of Catholics over the course of really um, almost coming up on the last year or so has been the topic of, of, of race. Of course, it was, I want to say... Um, let's see, it was the week before Pentecost. So we're coming up on Pentecost here in, um, you know, we just, just passed Easter coming up on Pentecost, uh, in a month or so. And it was the week before Pentecost last year that, uh, George Floyd died in the city of Minneapolis, actually not far from where my wife and I lived as we were attending law school. And, and ever since uh, the topic has really, I think been at the forefront of the minds of a lot of, a lot of people and is back, uh, back front of mind now as, um, as the police officer who was kneeling upon uh, Mr. Floyd's neck uh, when he died um, uh, is, is now being prosecuted, uh, has been tried, charged with, with several crimes. So it's kind of back in, the, in our consciousness. So, you know, maybe as a springboard for talking about the topic a little more broadly and trying to think, think through it too with the mind of the church, let's maybe just kind of recap some of the, the facts of, of where we are with this trial and kind of what's, what's happening. What, what are the kind of the salient important facts for people to understand if maybe they haven't been following as closely where we're at with this trial? Well, the trial, of course, is taking place in Hennepin County, right in Minneapolis. And they've actually been going on in one way, shape or form for almost a month now. I'd have to get my dates right. But it's been about a month, but most of that was taken up with jury selection, which took quite a while. Obviously, in Minneapolis, it's hard to find. They've got a guy. I'm trying to think of how many people they actually picked because they've got to have alternates. They've got 16 or 17 people, I think, as part of the jury pool, only 12 of whom uh, are jurist proper. Um uh, but that took a while to find, you know, it's whatever it was, 16 or 17 people who had no preconceived notions, uh, given the publicity of the trial uh, and, and of the incident and the fact that the mayor of Minneapolis and the governor of Minnesota came out right away uh, and denounced this police officer, Derek Chauvin, and said he was guilty of murder, which he very well may be, I should point out, uh, though perhaps imprudent for the mayor and the, the governor to say so in public since they've tainted the jury pool. Uh, but nonetheless, so now we've we've had a, a little over a week of actual testimony, and I think what we're seeing is that um, without getting into you know uh, the, the standards to meet the, his charges, which um, the, the the highest charge he's been charged with is second degree murder, and I'm I'm getting into your your law school 
uh, uh, wheelhouse there. So I'll, uh, if, if we want to talk about those things, I'll let you deal with those things. But they, they have to show an actual malice. I think what the prosecution's establishing is that Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck a really long time. About nine uh, minutes. Yeah, yeah. And, and longer than he needed to and longer than it was necessary to subdue Mr. Floyd. And, and the most recent testimony has showed that he was he was not going with police best practices. Mr. Floyd was no longer resisting arrest, but he was still being treated by Mr. Chauvin like he was resisting arrest. Uh, and I think that's a way of trying to demonstrate that there was a kind of malice uh, involved. Whether he, whether he didn't, Derek Chauvin, I'm sure, did not show up intending to kill someone, and that may have not have been his his intent, even kneeling on Mr. Floyd. But there was a, there was a kind of neglect uh, there that leads to second degree. What's what's it? Uh, what's the legal term, Chris? A uh, craven indifference mm. um, to his to his life, which makes him res- responsible for criminally responsible for Mr. Chauvin's death. And of course, after that death last year, as you reference, you know, lots of demonstrations, lots of rioting. It sort of was the revivification of the Black Lives Matter movement, which stemmed out of the Michael Brown case in Ferguson a few years right. ago. And now, and then kind of, you know, uh, um, uh, I say I got, was reborn, uh, uh, revitalized. And we saw it for, for both good and for ill um, over the course of, of last summer. So what we'll see, you know, they've got, they've got fences up with razor wire around that, yeah. that, that uh, courthouse in, in Minneapolis. Cause uh, you know, if, if, if a verdict of not guilty came, came down, um, uh, I'm afraid of what might happen. So yeah, the, uh, we'll see where things go. Yeah, following uh, Mr. Floyd's death last summer, the, the city burned, and we haven't mentioned this yet. I think everybody knows this, but just to um, just to be clear, uh, former Officer Chauvin is a, a white man, and, yeah. and George Floyd yeah. is an African American. Yeah. So, so of course, the implication. Uh, at the heart of so much of the public um, narrative and so much of the thought is certainly at the heart of um, the action of, of the crowds that, that led to Minneapolis in, in significant parts going up in flames is that there was real racial injustice at the heart of this. And this is, this is not necessarily a new uh, experience for our country. Our country has experienced, um, this sort of woundedness before some of them even said that that racism is the original sin of our country, of course, with um, uh, African-American slavery uh, that was uh, protected in law. But I think one of the questions that is, and people just keep coming to me, to, to me with this question time and again over the last year is, you know, is what we're seeing within the public narrative and the public discourse, is it authentic? Is it is it true? Is there something really true at the heart of it? This sort of um, visceral reaction uh, against an injustice, and is what is what the crowd is demanding, if you will, this public demand? Is it the correct demand, or is there actually a Christian sentiment that is, or a Christian truth, if you will, that's yeah. that's different? And that's what I hope we can talk about today. Yeah, let's let's look at it this way, Chris. You know, if if you go back, as I so often do on the show, go back to your Aristotle. Um, yeah is, you know, anger is not a vice. In fact, it can be a virtue. Mm. If you're walking down the street and you see some bullies 
beating up a, a, a small child and you're not angered by that, yeah. there's something wrong with you. And that right. anger is there to spur you to action. Uh, to So it's it's a natural, in fact, it's a very healthy reaction to injustice. And in fact, we have a name for it. It's righteous anger. Mm. Um, what we be, want to be careful about is when we indulge in anger for the sake of anger. And I think we have a name for that, which actually I was discussing this recently in a, in a club. We were talking about this subject because we we're reading some actually some Martin Luther King. And I'm, and I was pondering out loud in class, well, what would you call anger for the sake of anger? One of my students said, spite. But I want to make sure I cite my student because this, uh, she came up with this. So she was very wise. That yes, so there's a politics of spite, hmm. which engages in anger for the sake of anger. The, 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 the spur, the, the anger is there to spur us to make things better. And the thing is, we want to make things better because we love them. If you, you know, think back to Chesterton's orthodoxy. Yeah. And when in that, that famous line is that, um, that the Romans didn't love Rome because it was lovely. It was, it was lovely because the Romans loved it. Mm. Uh, if, you, if you love something, you, you want to make it better. Obviously, if I'm, if I'm indifferent to, say, my neighborhood, or if I was a, a resident of Minneapolis and I was indifferent to the fate of my city, then I really wouldn't care about whether it's uh, uh, the, the police possibly brutalizing and, and murdering a man, allegedly, uh, or people burning down buildings in response. To that. I wouldn't really care because I don't because my indifference, uh, by definition, is lack lack of caring. But if I love my city, if I love my neighborhood, if I love my country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, I will want to see it better. Mm. So it is is precisely because we we love each other and we love our communities that we we want to see them made better. And there is plenty of evidence. You know, we don't have to take every charge of activists at face value, but I think we all know the history of the United States. And, you know, there's a reason why uh, the church as a whole has apologized for racism. We have, which I think we'll talk about uh, timely, is our, our own bishop here in East South Dakota, uh, Donald DeGrood, Bishop DeGrood, on March 30th, released a letter on sort of this, this topic. And he himself apologized for any, uh, any kind of racism that may have occurred in, in, in Eastern South Dakota, any role the church may have played with that. He mentioned specifically Native Americans, uh, which is the, the, the biggest minority or the most, uh, uh, the, the, the minority of which there is the, the, the deepest history of racism in our state uh, is, with, is with Native Americans. And so we, we, we want to express uh, contrition for that. Yeah. So we want to ask for forgiveness, hopefully. Uh, on the other side, there's a reception uh, of that forgiveness, but we have to realize that there are actual injustices, and there certainly is plenty of anecdotal data that, for example, African-American interactions with police tend to go south uh, a lot more. They have more interactions with police. Um, uh, see that so many African-Americans have their own stories of minding their own business and getting hassled by police. Yeah, uh, Part of that, it makes sense because for whatever reason, we could argue about the reasons crime is higher in the African-American community, but there are plenty of innocent African-Americans who, who feel hassled, and even those who have some level of guilt 
feel as though they get hassled by the police or when they get into the criminal justice system that they don't get the justice other people get. And I think there's enough evidence there to give at least some warrant to us listening to that. And I said, that's why those of us who aren't African-Americans, uh, like myself, like Chris, we have to offer whatever contrition we, we need to. And then that has to be also, though, and here's also often the rub, that has to be accepted on the other side uh, as well. It, it, and so you've mentioned this uh, this letter from Bishop Donald DeGruy, the Bishop of Sioux Falls, uh, March 30th. And I'm going to put this up in the show description. So anybody who, who wants to read the letter and has it, I really encourage you to go read it. Um, as Professor Schaaf just mentioned, it um, it kind of just beautifully unpacks how to, how to love others and, and, and touches to a great degree on the sin of racism. Um, another thing I'm going to put in the show notes is um, – an article from firstthings.com last September uh, written by Lewis Brown. Lewis is uh, um, an African-American. So grateful. One of my great blessings from this last year is developing a friendship with Lewis just through his work in healthcare policy. But Lewis is uh, an African-American, attended historically black uh, law school at uh, Howard. And he's he's just sort of reflecting on the experience of America. It's a it's a it's a rather short article, uh, well worth the read. We encourage you to go, um, kind of check out both of those resources. But uh, Dr. Schaff, I think what you've just touched on this um, this sort of the, the need to express uh, contrition, and then on the other party to say, uh, thank you for expressing that. I forgive you. This is this is a uniquely Christian thing. Yeah. That let me. Go yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I was just saying, let me let me read one line from the bishop's letter. It's toward the beginning of the letter. He says, "Unlike every other creature on earth, you and I have all been created by God in His image and likeness because of His love for us." Right. So. We are all created in God's image, even in in the catechism. I'm, I'm going to read to you from 1934. That's the paragraph number. Uh, <laughs> created in the image of the one God and equally endowed with rational souls, all men have the same nature and the same or origin. This is under a, uh, a heading, equality and differences among men, which yeah. happens to precede the, the, the next section after that is the section on solidarity, which is fundamental to Christian social thought or Catholic social thought. Mm. Um, so there is this notion that we all have, whatever our differences are, we have something in common. We have something together that needs to bind us together. Now, but we're also created different. We have two different sexes. We do have different races. We have different cultures. We have different ethnicities. And one of the reasons maybe why God allows this or even creates this, and especially, in, you know, certainly in the, the instance of, of man and woman, is precisely because that is part of what makes love possible. It's mm. when, I, when I love a human being, it's not simply a love of another self. It's not self-love, but it is selfless love. I have to meet someone who has something different from me. Mm. And be, because we have a fundamental same nature— we can overcome these other differences and we can and we can find that love. And so even in his in his letter, Bishop DeGru talks about even in some of his own experiences uh, that, that he's had um, and what what he's learned from from difference. I think probably if, if, if you live a long, long enough time and you have a little bit of experience and maybe travel at least a little bit, um, 
I think all of us have these experiences of, of dealing with these things. And, and hopefully what they're supposed to, to, to build in us is a sense of compassion and a, and a sense of appreciation of difference. But while I, you know, I want to stress recognizing the underlying humanity, which is, which is why the church says that racism is a sin, mm-hmm. um, because it, it, it is a way of denying the common humanity between me and my brother or sister who might be of a different race or ethnicity. And so we have to over, over, overcome maybe, uh, maybe a natural friction, or yeah. I shouldn't say natural, but an understandable sometimes uh, friction. To over, same with, with men and women. Anyone who's married knows this, right? There are differences between men and women that you have to overcome in the name of something better. And that's the difference between the races, I don't think are, are, are as natural as they are between men and women, but, but there's still, there's, there's a, a difference that we overcome to find the common humanity there that we express through love, right? This is the very definition of love is, is being charitable to someone who is not myself and who has some differences from myself. Hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's a really beautiful explanation, and I think that's one of the you know again just thinking about my 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 friend Lewis, who this this friendship has kind of just blossomed in this last year. That's one of the things that has just filled me with gratitude about him. Is is he's from a completely different part of the country? We're different in so many ways, yet at the same time, I just really see um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, illuminate his personhood in a way that's just like super striking and beautiful and, and really awesome. Like it's, it's like, Oh, that's just awesome. So, which isn't, you know, being in, in South Dakota, which is I think relative to many parts of the country, a relatively uh, homogenous in a lot of ways, not, not just racially, although certainly racially, but in other ways too. Yeah. you know, it's not an experience that I necessarily get to have every day. So very grateful for it. Um, any any other um, points from well, Bishop DeGroote's letter that, that really struck you? Well, the, this idea of difference, I, I want to really, what is the essential human relationship, right? The, the, the essential, if we are created in the image of God, as Bishop DeGroote says, then we are called to love each other, right? As, Christ, Christ says at the Last Supper, "Now love each other as I have loved you." And this, you know, the, the selflessness, and this should be our essential relationship with our neighbor. Uh, if we think of just the story of, of the Good Samaritan, right? When uh, uh, the rich young man says, "How will I be justified?" You know, then you know, uh, love the Lord God as yourself, and, and or love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? And so we get the story of the Good Samaritan which uh, many people will, will know the reason, one of the reasons probably why Christ chooses the Samaritan is because there's this, there was at the time this sort of ethnic conflict mm. uh, uh, between Judeans and Samaritans, right? And Samaritans were looked down upon. And so to your, your, your standard Jewish audience, the idea that the Samaritan is the good guy in the story, and it's, it's, it's religious folks and rich folks who walk by, it's the good people, so to speak, uh, who walk by, and it's sort of the social outcast who actually is the one who expresses that love is important. And where I think we sometimes uh, go wrong in our rhetoric, and you get this sometimes out of, uh, for lack of a better word, ide- the identity politics side of things, and this is where we have to be wary and whatever virtue 
certainly small b, small l, small m, Black Lives Matter has, and that has has a lot of virtue. But then the capital B, capital L, capital M, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter as an institution and organization, not as a concept, um, is it sometimes starts from this notion that the essential relationship between human beings is one of power and that that there is a perennial relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed and so there's it, it is a quasi marxist interpretation of human relations in in which there's always a a a power struggle and it's a kind of zero sum game so if i gain power you lose power uh, and and vice versa and when we start taking that kind of mentality um you uh you make that possibility of forgiveness difficult uh, because it's saying there really is no forgiveness because the essential relationship is not one of people with the same nature who can love one another, but of people who are in essential essential conflict. And it might be oh, in, in traditional Marxism, that's class conflict, you know, the, the way it gets transferred and sometimes in, in, into other venues, it's, it's racial conflict. And so, and it's it's really at odds. So you, you go back to, for example, Martin Luther King's uh, "I Have a Dream" speech, yeah. right? When when he when he talks about uh, there is this beautiful passage toward the the end of the speech, where uh, he he says that um, he is one of his many "I Have a Dreams." I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and and white girls as sisters and brothers. Mm. And so, of course, this one that King is motivated. Obviously, he's, he's Reverend Martin Luther King. He's drawing from the Christian tradition, as he does in so many of his writings, is what, whatever the racism is, we can overcome that. And there is an essential brotherhood uh, or brotherhood and sisterhood, if you want to be non-gender specific, yeah. that um, that that is is the real truth of the human condition and yes. because that's the real truth of the human condition reconciliation is possible right even even in white alabama this speech is 1963 so people either either you know your history or use your historical imagination go look it up figure out what what alabama was like in 1963 and that uh, reference there to the governor, uh, George Wallace, a, a highly segregated, highly racist state. Uh, you, you would even go so far as to say uh, Jim Crow on steroids. Um, King is saying, but there, there is hope. There is even amongst racist, white racist Al- Alabamans, there is a hope of conversion. Hmm. Right. And, and there, the, the typical white Alabaman was a Christian who was an heir, but there was enough there that he thought there could be conversion there. Uh, and so it's not or his relationship. It's he want, he doesn't ignore the tension. You can go back to the letter from Birmingham jail. And he says, there is tension here. And I want to create tension because of righteous anger. Yeah. There's righteous anger that, he, but, but he, but it's not a, a language of condemnation or of bitterness or what I said before of spite 
but as one of reconciliation while also using language of condemnation. But in it, but out the, the language of King is always coming out of love. Uh, and I think that's it's that 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 uh, Christian foundation that he has, that it's always a language of love. So we want to beware, rhetoric, Chris, of of reducing relationships between the races to simply relationships of, of power. Mm-hmm. And, and if I win, you lose, or even we have the, the concept of, of, of um, intersectionality that the, the more oppressed I am, the more powerful I became. If I'm black, if I'm a black woman, if I'm a black woman who's homosexual, et cetera, et cetera, I gain power, the more oppressed categories I can, I can check off, right? And so, but it, then it, it, it is, it's, it's saying that my power, my historical powerlessness now gives me power, but, but that's, that, 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 that I think feeds into a sense of spite as opposed to how can we, re, how can we reconcile these, these, these differences? Yeah. And, and I think there, I mean, there's a lot there. And I would love to do a whole series of, of shows on, on this sort of neo-Marxist thought. And crit- I mean, because what we're talking about is, is critical theory. We've heard this term, yeah. perhaps even if you've never heard the term uh, in your life before, I think everybody in the, in the last year or so is, has maybe heard the term uh, critical race theory for the first mm-hmm. time. But this, this term could also, this, this critical theory could also be applied to critical gender theory or critical, you know, critical theory can be applied to all these different categories. Um, and it's hard as we sort of see some of these, this language, some of this rhetoric being unpacked in our public life. It's hard to see where, where the end is. Um, that's a happy end, if not for the possibility of reconciliation. Yeah. So we've, we've got um, just a couple minutes here remaining, Dr. Schaff, maybe just as a, as a closing thought, what, what should a Christian in the public square how should we be thinking about this? How should we be speaking? What should we, we be doing amidst sort of um, a new festering of a racial wound in our country? Well, let's let's look at this series that our good bishop has been producing, not just on race, but on a, on a number of topics, including the mass and some other things, is he's emphasizing the true, the good, and the beautiful. Mm. And even this, this, this letter that we're talking about is, how do we look at race from the specter of the true, the good, and the beautiful, right? And if that's what we're trying to, if we're trying to pursue truth, we're trying to pursue what's good and trying to pursue what's beautiful, right? Uh, and that's where it says that if the most essential, true, good, and beautiful thing about the human person is that we are created in God's image and that we are called on to, to love as God loves us, mm. right? If, if, if that's what we keep in the forefront, so as a public person, is I think speaking in language of, of, of contrition, reconciliation, and forgiveness. Um, and this is the rhetoric I think that has to be forming us, not the rhetoric of bitterness and spite, but the rhetoric of forgiveness, contrition, reconciliation. And the more, I want to, this is not Pollyanna-ish either. It's, it's while having righteous anger when we see injustices or when we recognize the history of injustice within our community, uh, but, but keeping in sight that, that, that the fundamental thing is, is the image of God of each individual person. Very well put. As always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. I, I hope I didn't blather on too long. No, it was, it was, it was very good. Thank you, dear listeners, as always, for tuning in. Until next time, live well.